done yet that you will do great things because that's your name. Tonight, Father, I pray that you will work in the kids' barn. Man, penetrate their hearts tonight so they may know you on a deeper level. Penetrate this room as well. Holy Spirit, saturate this environment. Take the words out of my mouth before I can utter them tonight. And help people receive you maybe in a new way tonight. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Kids, y'all may head down to Kids Barn. Enjoy it. Don't break anything. Have a good time. Well, how are we doing this evening? Good. Everybody's belly's happy tonight. Got a good meal. Everybody doing well? Good. Um, well, if you don't know me, my name is Dallas. I'm honored to be here with you tonight. I'd love to walk through everybody's favorite story, the book of Job. Um, actually, now that I've mentioned it, you're, Steve told me the other day that your favorite story is the book of Job, so you're going to have to explain that one to me. But uh, People don't typically choose this book as their favorite book because, you know, it's not sunshine and rainbows. There's a whole lot of suffering involved in this book, and, um, and, and not just any kind of suffering. It's a, a suffering that's difficult for us with our limited understanding to really grasp and rationalize why this even takes place. And as far as I can tell, there's essentially two types of suffering as far as my limited brain can understand. And I think these are probably the technical terms. Uh, the first one is seemingly fair suffering, where we can essentially look at the suffering and connect the dots and say, you know, somebody runs into a wall and they get a concussion. Then we understand the suffering that's going to happen, right? We can connect the dots in our minds, and that gives us a little bit of peace, and in fact, it helps us even feel like maybe we can prevent this sort of suffering in some way, right? If we can connect the dots on the suffering, then we feel like we can maybe prevent that from happening. Uh, but the second one is the seemingly unfair suffering, where it's not just that we uh, don't understand it, sometimes it's that we can't possibly understand it, that um, that our minds are incapable of understanding why they're suffering. Uh, things like natural disasters. I don't think anybody really has a great explanation, or at least I haven't heard it yet. I shouldn't say that. I haven't heard a great explanation for that kind of suffering, for somebody to experience a natural disaster. Things like certain health diagnoses, things like traumas, abuses, all those things we can't fully understand, let alone rationalize and this can be very overwhelming to us can it there can be an anxiety that comes over us and I, I don't want to make light of that tonight and you won't hear me try to um, take a, a shot at rationalizing some of these things and some of these pain and suffering and these things that people have in their life I'm not going to do that in fact sometimes when people do that it can go the other direction and be hurtful not helpful at all. In fact, we see in this story for like 30-some chapters where 
his friend, Job's friends, are trying to explain away the suffering that's going on, and it's not helpful, it's hurtful. But the only thing I really truly know here tonight in our suffering is that we do have someone named Jesus who can and does say, I love you, I've been there, and I'm here with you through it. So when you suffer, I want that to ring true in your mind that Jesus can say and does say, I love you, I've been there, and I'm here with you through it. With that, let's dive in to the book of Job. Uh, If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Job chapter 1, also be on the screen as well, but let me just kind of set up the time frame and the context and everything here in this book. Uh, So Job is in a time period after the great flood, but before the time of Abram, and a lot of scholars think that the book of Job is actually the very first book of the Bible written, uh, written even before the book of Genesis, and it's a part of what scholars would call the wisdom literature. It's Uh, There's essentially three books in wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the book of Job. And Proverbs essentially would tell you that um, God is just and God does the right things. And Ecclesiastes would tell you that we are just kind of a vapor. We're gone in an instant and some people will have the things that, you know, should happen to them actually happen to them. And sometimes that doesn't happen. And so the book of Job kind of reconciles these two ideas, puts these two ideas together through this story of a man named Job. And Job is someone who has been faithful to God. He's been obedient to God, and he's been very blessed by God. And the enemy here in chapter 1 thinks that Job has only been faithful to God because God has blessed him. So the enemy says this, to God in verse 10, going through 12. He says, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything that he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, I want to point out a couple quick things already that's important for our conversation tonight. Uh, The first is, uh, essentially, uh, what did I write? Pop, Pop it up there, David. I forgot what I wrote there. Nailed it. Good. Uh, The enemy is not a competitor of God. Now, initially I had written rival, but that word can kind of... They are enemies of one another, but the enemy is not in competition with God. That's so important for us to know. In fact, Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. So we're not talking about dualism here. We're not talking about like two co-equal powers fighting for position. We're also not talking about a knockdown, drag-out, war where God just kind of barely wins in the end. No, the enemy has to come to God and ask him before he can do anything. This is so important for us to know and cling to, that the ultimate authority belongs to God, and it's not even close. And the second thing I want to point out is that 
God never does bad things, but he does allow them. And now that's obvious. We know that God doesn't do bad things, and we know that he allows them, but I think that this is probably the hardest part for us, isn't it? I mean, for me especially, the fact that God has the power not to allow evil, but allows evil. And so we ask questions like, God, what could possibly be the purpose in this? God, how can you just watch these natural disasters occur or watch things like terrorism occur or whatever the case may be? How can you give permission to the enemy to let these things happen? That's difficult for us. It's difficult for us because we can't understand it. But the third point that I want to keep in mind tonight, and this is critically important, is that God places limits on what the enemy can do. Now, especially as it pertains to what the enemy can do with us. Throughout the scriptures, we know that God tells the enemy that if we are in Christ, he cannot have us. For all those who have given their lives to Christ, we enter a kingdom in front of God now. Not whenever our bodies fade one day, but right now we are in his kingdom. He tells the enemy, you can't have Job. Do what you want, but you can't have him. And because the enemy cannot ultimately change our position or do anything about us being in God's kingdom, all he can do is distract and distort what God tells us. And y'all, I did this in 2016. I told y'all about some of my panic issues, and the enemy started to distort things. He'd say, sure, Jesus died for you, but because you can't seem to get your stuff together, he's regretting that decision. You see how he twists things, distorts things? I'd even read scripture, and I'd start to uh, feel like I've got to work for God's affections instead of understanding that I'm already his. And y'all, this is really all the enemy has. When you lose a loved one, he wants you to think that somehow God doesn't care. Or worse, that he's not even present during it. Or if you're battling health issues, the enemy wants you to feel that you don't have hope. But we must never lose sight of the fact that we're his and he will not abandon us i think maybe some of us need to hear that again he will not abandon you something's only as valuable as what someone's willing to pay for it and god spared no expense when he gave his son's life on the cross for us we're so valuable to him And he will not abandon us. Listen to what Jesus says here in John 10, 28 and 29. He says, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. You know, I believe that in the story of Job, this is where Job has his focus right here. He knows that everything is in God's hands, and in fact, he is in God's hand. See, the enemy takes everything away from Job. He takes all his livestock. He takes everything he owns, essentially, and even his kids. 
But look at Job's response here in verse 21. I, you know, I don't know that this would ever be my response, but this is Job's response here in verse 21. He says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. So the enemy comes back in chapter 2 after Job refused to curse God in chapter 1. And he says, okay, you know what, God? The only reason he didn't curse you is because you wouldn't let me lay a finger on him. So let me attack his body and then see how he responds. And God says again, okay, you can bring harm to Job's body, but his life is mine. So the enemy sends boils from head to toe for Job. And it's so graphic. I mean, the Bible says that he's like sitting in the ashes of his skin. So Job now has lost his wealth, he's lost his belongings, he's lost his kids, and now he's experiencing unimaginable pain. And here's how his wife responds to him, uh, Job 2.9. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Man, y'all look, my wife Morgan's blunt, but if she ever gets this blunt, y'all y'all gonna talk to her. I mean, she's gonna need some kind of serious intervention. Curse God and die. Great. Uh, he replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? See now, this is so much easier said than done. But Job, in the midst of his suffering, is choosing here, now this is so important, is choosing here to interpret his circumstances in light of God's love instead of interpreting God's love in light of his circumstances. Did you catch that? At this time, his perspective is so much bigger than just his circumstances despite the unimaginable suffering. And here's the thing, he was never praising the blessings in the first place. He was praising God, and that's so important. So he's able to trust God when those blessings are taken away. He knows God, and he knows that he hasn't been abandoned by God, and that's enough for him. At least at this moment. Everybody's got their breaking point, right? So his friends come along, and after um, everything's been taken from him, they, they show up, which is a good friend thing to do. But they essentially start blaming Job. You know, surely you've done something here to deserve what all's happened to you. And this goes on for 30-some chapters of just going back and forth, back and forth of, you know, no, I, I didn't do anything wrong, and yes, you did, and all that, back and forth. And the friends actually make some really good points. Like, if you don't know in the first chapter that it has laid out that Job was blameless and pure before God you would probably think these friends are making some really good arguments. But the problem is he did not deserve in any way the suffering that's happened to him. And so finally he's had enough. And he calls out God. All right, I don't mean just that he calls out to God. He calls God out essentially for picking on him. He says this in uh, chapter 30. He says, God has turned away from him ruthlessly, that God has used his power to abuse Job for no reason. And here's something pivotal for us to understand. 
when Job starts questioning God, God still meets him in that space. That when he is throwing a fit and complaining, and I'm, hey, I'm not mocking him. I mean, I'd be complaining way before he did, all right? But when he's complaining, God meets him in that space. He listens to him, and he responds. And, y'all, this is a sobering response. It's blunt, but it's an extremely helpful response. This is what God says in response to Job in chapter 38. He says, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness... When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? So God goes on for a couple more chapters like this. He essentially drops the mic on Job and essentially tells him, hey, uh, you asked, and now I'm going to share with you how limited your perspective really is to mine. And by the way, I believe wholeheartedly this is loving from God. Because watch how Job responds here. It helps Job shift his perspective and his thinking in a whole new way when he starts to understand the depth and the vast greatness of God's perspective. He says this in Job 42, 1 through 3. He says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is it that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. So Job understands essentially two things here. One, that God has not abandoned him, that he is with him, and that he is listening, and that he's willing to respond, and he starts to understand a depth to God that he didn't understand before. And while Job's understanding of the circumstances did not increase, his understanding of God did increase, which allowed him much more peace than if he had understanding of the circumstance. Now, I know that's confusing. I'm going to say it again. While Job's understanding of the circumstances did not increase, his understanding of God did increase, which allowed him more peace than merely understanding the circumstance. When we rely on God's understanding, we can have peace. So during this interaction, God corrects Job in his thinking, but never abandons him. In fact, meets him right where he is because God is not afraid of our questions. He's not afraid of our anger. He's not afraid of our doubts. He wants to meet us right where we are. And he wants to help us not stay there either. Y'all, I'd love for us to be a people who just come 
to God in a very real way. And you may get a sobering response from him, but it will be rooted in truth. It'll be rooted in depth, and it will help the relationship grow and move forward. You might get straight up rebuked in the process, but it's for the growth and the longevity of the relationship. And by the way, this is what we were made for. Intimacy with God, blessing or suffering, intimacy with him that transcends our circumstance is what we were made for. And Job, on the other side of it, still not having an answer, he had God's presence. and He understood that God's perspective was so much greater than our own. And he knew God on a much deeper level. And frankly, that was enough for him. Is that enough for us here tonight to have peace? The book ends uh, with God blessing Job even more than before. And by this time, Job has an understanding that God gives and God takes away. And despite the circumstances, good or bad, he trusts him. Whatever season might be on the horizon, he trusts him. Whether it's suffering or it's blessing, he can endure all situations. Like the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, he says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. We learned a lot of good lessons from the story of Job, but one that continues to stick out in my mind is that there is no blueprint for avoiding all suffering. And if there was, we'd start to praise the blueprint. And it would rob us of intimacy with God. See, if there was a blueprint, we would praise it and it would sell us short of what we were truly made for in the first place. The fact that we get to have an intimate, growing relationship with God, this will always be our ultimate prize. At its core, what our heart really desires is not blessings, it's Him. The blessings are great, but what we truly desire is Him. And y'all, if I had all the steps and all the answers, I know my heart. I would praise those steps and those answers instead of Him. And if there's anything else beside Him, we shouldn't want it. We shouldn't want it. May we be a group of people who do seek to find answers to hard questions, but more than that, that we seek Him and that we rest in Him when we don't have those answers. Because here's the thing, we have a high priest who can empathize with our suffering. We have a high priest who says, I love you, I've been there, and I'm here with you through it now and forever. Y'all, let's be a church that clings to that truth in the midst of suffering. When we can't understand it, we understand that Jesus has been there too. And we can trust in him in the process. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Just stories that are literally, what, 
4,000 years old that brings truth to this room here tonight. Father, your name transcends time. And we're so thankful for the way you continue to impart yourself into our lives to teach us more about you. Father, I pray that if there is suffering going on tonight, um, I, I just pray for healing in that, first and foremost. I pray that you'll work in it. I pray that you will help us to understand more deeply the power and the authority over that thing that we might be dealing with. And I pray that you'll just give us a supernatural peace that only you can give. And Father, we thank you that you continue to show up. And Father, we believe that you will continue again and again and again. Father, as we worship, I pray that you will help us to be convicted where we need it, encourage us where we need it, and most of all, pray that we will just praise your name because you deserve the glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
had a friend a while back tell me that um, he wasn't really sure who he was. And I sort of walked along the process with him, and a few months later, he told me, he says, I know who I am. I'm a child of God. The fact that Jesus has made a way for us to be in the Father's hand forever and to have our primary identity once and for all to be a child of God, man, he's worthy of our praise. And so as we leave here tonight, man, give him praise and all the glory in everything that you do. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have made a way, that you, that you could have actually made us just be a slave to you, not just a slave to fear, but now we are your slave, but instead you call us your children. You've adopted us into your family, and we've come to you and we've said, God, I've wrecked things so much, and I just, I'm not worthy to be called your son, yet you run to us, and you give us a huge hug, and you say, kill the fattened calf, we've got to party, because my son, my daughter is home. And so we praise your name, because it's all about you. We've done nothing to earn this. It's been your gracious gift to us, and we are no longer slaves to anything. We are your son and your daughter. We praise you tonight. We love you a whole lot. In Jesus' name, amen.